Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 2. It was uh, last year we said, uh, said we start working on the Psalms. It might take us 10 or 15 years to really go through all the Psalms. We'll be going off and on and sometimes you go through a verse or two in the Psalm and sometimes you go through the entire verse and Sometimes you can go through the entire verse and then come back and do a verse or two because they're just so fabulous, so fabulous. One of the great things to do if, if you find that you're having uh, trouble in your prayer life, it just seems to be stale for some reason, begin to pray through the Psalms. Pick a Psalm and begin to pray through it, insert your name into it, insert your situation into it. These are David's words, you mostly to the Lord about his situations. Some were meant to be, were they all meant to be sung, but some are simply prayers that were sung to the Lord. This is a great way to focus your attention and your heart upon the Word and upon what He calls you to do. So if you're able, would you stand with me and I'll read Psalm 2. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us and open our eyes. Open our minds and open our hearts, that these are not just words on the page, but they come alive to us. They are full of of truth and of of righteousness and and demonstrate how we are to live in this world to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the second psalm. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possessions. Thou shalt break them with the rod of iron, thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now this is a call to the kings, a call to the rulers and the leaders that are in the area uh, around Israel, around David at that time, and we'll look more at that in a moment. Uh, But it's also a call to not just them, but it's a call to all rulers and all leaders. And and when we think about that in in our society, in our world, we have local leaders and, and local rulers, we call them mayors or city council members or congressmen or senators or presidents. And and I will project upon you for a moment, okay? You, you can disagree. I, remember I told you don't let your politicians do your theology. Don't let your theologians do your politics for you, okay? I kind of like leaders who at least have 
or in the neighborhood of my moral compass, okay, or at least have a moral compass. Somebody who believes that there is right and there is wrong and that we need to pursue right. Now, you know, I've read enough Tom Clancy novels that, that government has to do some sneaky things now and then, right? I mean, they do some bad things. Well, we call them bad, but they're for the protection of our nation. Isn't that, is if you take the oath as a president or as a senator or whatever, that's your first thing is to protect, defend the nation. I mean, that's, that's you know, we want the people in, in office who will do that. But we also want people who will do things that are righteous and that are true. And so as we look back at, at the presence as an example, we see that we've had Episcopalian presidents and we've had uh, deist presidents. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He believed in God that got it going and then kind of left it to us to, to work with. I'm sure we've had straight-out non-believing president, but it, when you're running for office, you don't usually say that I'm an agnostic or I'm an atheist. You might say that you're a Presbyterian because you went there once, uh, but, you know, because you, you've got to hold that, you've got to have some tie. We've had Methodists, we've had, um, obviously, JFK was the first Roman Catholic uh, president. Uh, Richard Nixon was what? A Quaker president? Okay, and what kind of church does our, our current president go to? He went to a, uh, it was a, a UCC church, but it was a black liberation church. Okay, if you don't know what black liberation theology is, go home and look that up. Okay, so we see that we have a, quite a breadth of representation there, but they pretty much all had some moral compass as a leader and as a ruler and some commonality there. When we look at the rulers throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Kings and Chronicles, we see a, a recurring theme. Either they did right in the eyes of the Lord, or they did what? They did wrong in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, There were there only two categories of kings. And when you break down, remember there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Northern kingdom was Israel. There are no kings in Israel who did right in the sight of the Lord. I'm funny. In the southern kingdom, in Judah, there were several, uh, let's say, it's easier to list all who did right than to list all who did wrong, okay? For 400 years, the only ones who did right in the sight of the Lord were Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, Jotham, and Hezekiah. Now, they didn't always do right in the eyes of the Lord, but they mostly did right, enough to say at the end of their life, as they went and rested with their father David, they did right in the eyes of the Lord. None of them were perfect. Looks like none of us were perfect either. Now we're familiar with the saying that, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, okay? So maybe this is what happens to rulers as they get into power, positions of power. They forget that, that they forget their humility, maybe. They forget their servanthood leadership. I mean, if you want to be first in the kingdom, you have to be last. If you want to be the greatest, you have to be the least. That, that doesn't usually sell in the non-believing world. Okay? We forget when we elect elders, which we will uh, uh, this month, and, and, and deacons, they are in positions of authority. But they are the servants 
They are there to serve the congregation. Okay? Not just to lead the congregation, but they lead it through an attitude of humility and of service. But it seems that some reach kind of the pinnacle of leadership and suddenly humility is gone, understanding of servanthood is gone, and in their place rises hubris, pride, selfishness. You know, I must be important because they put me here, right? Or I must be important because I sit on the throne and then it all becomes about me. It becomes about me. Best example in the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4, I'll just give you the short version of it. He stands and he goes, you know, I am just the greatest thing in the world. Look what I have built. Look what I have done. And it was at that moment that the prophecy that was spoken before came true and he was struck with madness by the Lord and spent seven years out in the wilderness eating grass like a cow. You say, well, that's kind of strange. Well, uh, if my memory serves me correctly, there is some psychological disorder that makes people eat grass. You have to look that up with, with the other things, okay? But, but so for seven years, he went into the wilderness and, and ate grass like a cow until basically the scripture says he came to his senses and then he was restored to his position with an understanding that the Lord is the one God and his humility returned. That didn't stay all the time, but it, it came back. It came back. So it's not, difficult to, it's not difficult to find in the history of our nation leaders who understood their role and their position. Now, I'm just going to quote from several here uh, from their own writings. It seems that many of our presidents, and, and these are just presidents, understood that they served at the Lord's pleasure. They served at the Lord's pleasure. George Washington said, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and to hum and humbly to implore His protection and favor. That was George Washington. John Adams said, The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and the attributes of God. Abraham Lincoln. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history, that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. Teddy Roosevelt. I believe that the next half century will determine if we will advance the cause of Christian civilization or revert to the horror, horrors of brutal paganism. He was kind of a pragmatism, pragmatist. Dwight Eisenhower. Without God, there could be no American form of government, nor an American way of life. Recognition of the supreme being is the first, the most basic, expression of Americanism. Thus the founding fathers of America saw it, and thus with God's help it will continue to be. And then Ronald Reagan, the Congress of the United States in recognition of the unique contribution of the Bible in shaping the history and character of this nation and so many of its citizens has by Senate Joint Resolution 165 authored and requested the president to designate the year 1983 as the year of the Bible. 
So those are just some of the words from some of our rulers who had a, a moral compass and who understood that, yes, they had reached the pinnacle of, of leadership, the pinnacle of power, because the president of the United States is pretty much, we call it the most powerful man in the world. If we're the most powerful nation, then he's the leader. These people understood that they were there because the Lord was at work and the Lord placed them there. And what happens here in Psalm 2 is that the leaders around David were beginning to think that they really didn't need David's permission. They really wanted to do their own thing. Now that's one aspect of Psalm 2. The other aspect of Psalm 2 is the overarching king over all history. This foretells, Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, and it is foretelling the coming of the Son of God, the coming of the one true king who rules over everything and everyone, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who, what Hebrews say, the exact imprint of the Father, the radiance of his glory. Psalm 2 is one of the most, it is, in fact, it is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. It fits together in a very interesting way. It's almost, in some Hebrew versions, you have Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 actually being the same psalm, one long psalm together, because Psalm 1 seems to end in a particular way where Psalm 2 just picks up very easily like it. Psalm 1 ends with a threat. Psalm 2 begins with the threat. Uh, Psalm 2, we have the wicked meditates or plots on how to cast off the rule of God. In Psalm 1, there's the theme, which is contrasted between the righteous person and the wicked person. Psalm 2, we have wicked rulers. We have the righteous ruler, the anointed one, the Messiah. It is the Father's decree to give him dominion over all things, over all rulers of the world. And whether they admit it or not, he has dominion over them. Remember uh, the, the, the great Christ hymn in, in Philippians chapter 2. It says what there? Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't say that they all will receive him as Lord and Savior. It says every knee, whether it's on heaven, on, on earth, or under earth, in heaven, anywhere, will bow and proclaim that Christ is the King. There's no debate about that. That's what will happen. So the rulers, the local rulers here, have worked hard to get where they are. Um, if they were rulers today in our world, they will have uh, shake, shaken, shaken hundreds and thousands of hands, kissed hundreds of babies, raised hundreds of millions of dollars to get into positions of leadership. They probably owe a lot of favors to people because of all the money that they were given. All the special interest groups, all the uh, backs they had to rub and, 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 and things like that. The leaders here are kings at this time were probably a little bit more ruthless. They got there mm, outside of David. They probably got there by killing their enemies and, and, and doing things like that. So they were, they were there to protect their power and they felt no particular allegiance or obligation to submit themselves to the rule of the one true God. Now Psalm 2 structured verses 1 to 3, 4 to 6, 7 to 9, 10 to 12 in four different sections. So we'll look at it in that way. 
There's a narrator here who talks a little bit about what's going on and describes it for us. And then there's the Lord who speaks as well. So let's look at this Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So against the anointed in the immediate context is David, but in the larger messianic context it is Jesus Christ. The rulers of the world take their position against Christ. Let us tear their fetters apart. Fetters are chains. Okay, let us tear their chains apart, cast away their cords from us. So the narrator asks why they engage in anything as useless as trying to throw off the rule of God. Why would you throw off the rule of God? Don't you understand that God has all this authority and all this power and you just want to cast it off? That is an impossibility. They want to cast off David's rule in its particular application here. So there are some rulers there. If we, you don't have to turn there, I'll give you the short version of it. Samuel chapter 10 with the Ammonites. And the Ammonites were enemies of David. And David sends off emissaries to the Ammonite kings. Okay? He sends off you know, half a dozen guys. And you have to understand, as an emissary of King David, you at that point had, had fancy clothes. Uh, at that time you had uh, long beards. These were all signs of respect and authority. And they go to the Ammonite kings. And, and the, the Ammonite kings strip David's emissaries naked and they shave off half their beards, okay? And then they send them out. Now, no, you think, well, that's, that sounds pretty strange. But this is a really, really an act of shame upon these men. One, that half their beard would be gone, and that they would be seen naked in public. And David just about has a come apart over this, and just wants to wipe them all out. And and basically, that's that's what happens. Um, And and the Ammonites enlist the Syrians, and David crushes them all. Okay, that's the short version. So guys, don't shave half your beards. Okay, it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. So David, the the Lord's anointed, writes a psalm, and probably that comes out of this context here. So in one level, it refers to David. And, and the Ammonites and the Syrians, but on the other level, it applies to Christ. It's ultimately fulfilled in God's Son, who is also David's Son, the Son of David, spoken of very often in Scripture. So David writes this about himself. In a deeper way, he writes it about Jesus, the Christ. So these kings rebelled against David, but all men rebel against Christ. All men want their own way. We like it that way. We just don't understand how much better God's way is until we submit to his authority. Now, who is the author of rebellion? Flip Wilson knew it. What did he say? He said, the devil made me do it. Okay? You've got to be a certain age to understand the Flip Wilson, I guess. Um, so, but Satan is the author of rebellion. You go back to Isaiah chapter 14. It talks about the fall of Satan. Okay? And how he rebelled against the authority and, and leadership of God. The world was created to some extent as this, as this theater, theater to be worked out. So the, the answer to all these things to be worked out. The answer to Satan's rebellion, the answer to man's sin comes through Christ. Now we learned a few weeks ago this started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. 
He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, that's the woman's seed, shall bruise you, the serpent on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. And we looked at that. That's the original uh, portion of sin and how we've been separated from the Lord because of that. It's a curse upon Satan. Jesus would bruise the heel of Satan, but Satan would bruise him Satan would bruise him on the heel, and Jesus would bruise him on the head. So either you're willing to submit to the authority of the Lord, you're willing to submit to the authority of of the king that he places over us, or eventually it will be a forced subjection, because the Lord is in charge. Now we think about chaos sometimes that we see. We think about throughout history, there have been terrible rulers, terrible rulers in, in, in nations across the, the world. We think of, of, of nations that have killed tens of millions of their own people, all from the top down. It starts with one person that says, this is the way we're going to run our country. Or you see um, you know, countries that, that wipe out entire sections of their country because they don't conform. And we think, well, how could this be possible? Is God not aware of these things? Is he not paying attention? Yes, he is. God is, has not lost control temporarily in this. But God, it, the psalmist goes on to show us what is going on here. Let's look at verse 4. Here are the schemes of man in the, verse three, in, in the first three. And here's what God does. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord scoffs at them. This is the only place in Scripture I could find that the Lord laughs. He laughs at the schemes of man. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't ache at at the corruption that he sees in man, especially in the rulers who act in inappropriate ways. But here are all the schemes of man and how we're going to do this and how we're going to be all this, and the Lord sits up there. It's worse than, than laughing at our teenagers when they have plans right here they have plans this is what we're going to do and you think those things will never work out but you go ahead and try go ahead and try the lord just laughs at these people he scoffs at them this is what human attempts to throw off the rule of god deserve they deserve to be laughed at to be scoffed at let me give you a few examples of people who tried to throw off the rule of god throughout history The Roman emperor Diocletian struck a coin in the late 3rd and early 4th centuries that said, the name of Christianity has been extinguished. What did the Beatles say? We're going to be more popular than than Jesus. Isn't that right? Mm, mm. Diocletian expanded the empire, erected two monuments at the furthest points of the empire, and this is what they said. Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculeus, Caesar, Augusti has extended the Roman Empire in the east and west and has extended the name and has extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ for having extended the worship of the gods. In reality, during Diocletian's rule, the church grew exponentially. Okay? But Diocletian seemed to have missed that somewhere. He thought he had wiped out the things of Christ, when in reality the things of Christ grew to such a large degree. 
Let me give you a little bit more of this. Of 30 Roman emperors, governors of providences, and others in high office who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting the early Christians, one became speedily deranged after some atrocious cruelty, one was slain by his own son, one became blind, the eyes of one started out of his head, one was drowned, one was strangled, one died in a miserable captivity, one fell dead in a manner that will not bear recital. So bad we can't even tell you how bad it was. One died of so loathsome a disease that several of his physicians were put to death because they could not abide the stench that filled his room. Two committed suicide. A third attempted it but had to call for help to finish the work. Five were assassinated by their own people or servants. Five others died the most miserable and excruciating deaths, several of them having an untold complication of diseases. Eight were killed in battle or after being taken prisoner. Among these was Julian the Apostate. In the days of his prosperity, he is said to have pointed his dagger to heaven, defying the Son of God, whom he commonly called the Galilean. But when he was wounded in battle, he saw that all was over with him, and he gathered up his clotted blood and threw it into the air, exclaiming, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. All these people thought they could rule the world. And then one of the ways that they would rule the world was to get rid of Christianity. They all died these terrible, terrible deaths. God has this calm assurance in the face of our rebellion, in the face of our stupidity, because he alone is sovereign. He alone is in control. He has a predetermined plan to deal with our rebellion. Verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Now, to some extent, as I said, it refers to David, but ultimately it refers to Christ. And this is quoted throughout the New Testament. John describes this, this vision of Christ, he says in Revelation chapter 19, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the King. That is the Son whom he has begotten. That is the one who will rule over all. Over all. Spurgeon said, Observe, dear friends, the wonderful contrast between the violent excitement of the enemies of the Lord and the sublime serenity of God Himself. The sublime serenity of God Himself. He is not disturbed, though the heathen so furiously rage, and their kings and mighty ones set themselves in battle array. He smiles at them, but it is a smile of derision. You and I are often downcast and depressed, and our forebodings are dark and dismal, but God sits in his eternal peacefulness and serenely overrules all tumult, all tumult and all rebellion. The Lord reigns, and his throne is not moved, nor his rest broken, whatever may be the noise and turmoil below. Notice the sublimity of his divine calm. 
while the heathen and their princes are plotting and planning how to break his bands asunder and cast his cords from them, he has already defeated their devices, and he says to them, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. You will not have my son to reign over you, but nevertheless he reigns. Hear him as he proclaims my decree and asserts his filial sovereignty. You don't think God can be overcome by men and by their plans. You don't think God's plan can be somehow disrupted by the likes of evil rulers? No. So what should we do? Let's look at this last section, 10 to 12. The call is for the kings, but it's also for us to show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. This is the call upon us, upon all rulers and upon all people. Worship the Lord, rejoice with trembling, do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled, but how blessed are all who take refuge in him. The commentator from the 1700s, Matthew Henry, said, Those that will not bow shall break. Friends, it is dependent upon us as believers to bow before the one true king. It's dependent upon the rulers that serve us and that lead us to keep in mind there is one king. There is one ruler who has a sovereign plan and his plan will come to fruition. Let's pray. Lord, You speak to those around David who rebelled against him. You speak to all rulers and kings who might want to go and do their own thing. You alone and your anointed one will rule. And you speak to our hearts as well. Who is our king? Do we trust in the princes of this world or do we trust in the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Lord, you put civil rulers over us that we are to follow until the point that they so diverge from the word of God that we must follow you instead. We have one king, and that is Christ. We have one ruler over us, and he is righteous, and he is just, and he alone is good. Lord, we pray that our lives would reflect that. We pray that our actions, the priorities that we hold, would hold fast to the things of Christ. That our actions would give you glory. That all that we would do would further your purposes and fit within your plan as we await the return of the one true King. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.